0: I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. Our message today will come from there. And while you're doing that, I just wanted to thank you again for the opportunity to bring a lesson, something that I hope will be a blessing to you and will encourage you and challenge you. Uh, But let's go ahead and get into this book a little bit by talking about um, Daniel, the man, and the book that he wrote. Daniel was probably around 16 years old when he was taken into Babylonian captivity. Uh, And his ministry lasts the entire 70 years of that captivity. Uh, I I believe Daniel wrote his book for at least three reasons. Number one, he was writing this book to make it clear that what was happening to the Israelites uh, was not because the gods of the Babylonians were stronger than the God of heaven. You have to imagine that all of those captives that were there would have been hearing something like that. Where is your God now? How were we able to do this if your God really is the strongest God? But Daniel, right from the very first verse, look if you would at chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now listen to these words. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. You see, this happened because God wanted it to happen. God was the one who stirred up the Babylonians. God was the one who was trying to teach a lesson to the Israelites. Sometimes I think we hear from people in the world, all of these things wouldn't be going on if God was really there, if God was really who you say He is. And the fact of the matter is, sometimes God is doing things that we don't understand. Um... But that's one of the reasons Daniel would have said this. A second reason that Daniel wrote this book was to help his people understand that the promised messianic kingdom that had been promised both to Abraham and to David was not going to happen right after the captivity. Uh, Over and over again in this book, there are dreams that the king has and, and prophecies that are made. That it was going to be in the days of the fourth kingdom from Babylon that God would establish a kingdom that would never go away, that would incorporate the whole world. Um, And maybe the third reason related to that, God wanted to tell the Israelites that he had not forgotten the covenant that he had made with David. That this was not some sort of um, mistake that was going on that they were in Babylon, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, you can read about God making promises to David. And that promise sounds pretty secure, like that nothing's ever going to happen to the Israelites because God's going to rule and to reign through uh, the line of David. But if you want more detail on that, go to Psalm 89 sometime. And in Psalm 89, that covenant that God made with David has more detail and there were some punitive things that were said in that, in that psalm. For example, if, if God's people didn't do what they were supposed to, uh, God would punish them. God would discipline them. He would beat the fire out of them, essentially. Um, and so what's going on here in the book of Daniel is these, these Gentile nations are doing exactly what God said that they were going to do in Psalm 89. There um, there's so many great messages in this book, all kinds of great prophecies, some of them are pretty difficult, no doubt about it, uh, but the book is broken into two parts, so there are 12 chapters in Daniel. The first six chapters are historical chapters. Um, there is some prophecy, but mostly they read as narrative, like a, a history book with stories that are being told. Um, that section of the book is written in the third person, and the primary theme of those six chapters is judgment. The second half of the book, instead of being uh, written in the third person, it's written in the first person. Um, And instead of it being historic, it's more prophetic. Most of the prophecies in the book are in that section, though there is a little bit of history in there as well. But instead of judgment, that, is, that section is hope. So six chapters of judgment, six chapters of hope. Six chapters in the third person, six chapters in the first person. What we're going to focus on um, in this lesson is taken from the history section. We're going to talk about three young men named Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They are better known as Shadrach, Meshach, Meshach and Abednego. And their story takes place in chapter 3, but in order for us to understand what's going on in the lives of these young men, we're actually going to start back in chapter 1. So notice with me a couple of things about uh, these three young men, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They were friends with Daniel, and they also would have been probably teenagers when they were taken into captivity. Uh, But notice what happens here in chapter 1, verse 3. It says, The king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of the officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom was no defect, who were good looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. Now, when Nebuchadnezzar came and took the first group of captives away from Israel, there were actually three times that he did that. The first time, he took away the nobles, the rich, the powerful, those in government, uh, and their families. The second time he came, he took away the craftsmen. Ezekiel would have been a part of that uh, second carrying away. Um, but Daniel, Hanani, Michel, and Azariah had certain... Qualities, certain qualifications about them. And you see that there in verse 4. Notice what they were looking for. The Babylonians wanted um, people who were uh, physically fit. They were good looking. They were good specimens. They didn't want to spend a bunch of government money to train these guys and have them drop dead of a heart attack. They didn't want to put them in front of the people to be leaders if they didn't look good. So they were good looking. Uh, It also says in in verse 4 that they showed intelligence in every branch of wisdom. They were smart young men. They got high SAT scores back home. Uh, So they were physically fit. They were intellectually capable. Uh, It also sounds like they were socially capable. At the end of verse 4, they were endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge and had ability to serve in the king's court. What Nebuchadnezzar was going to do was he was going to take some of these Young men and make them leaders that could help uh, with all of this new influx of people from a different place. Um, but you know what is true about Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah? Is it wasn't that they were more physically fit or intellectually capable or socially smooth than everybody else. They had another quality. And that quality in chapter one was God was with them. And everything they did, they kept looking to the Lord for guidance and for help. Uh, They were people of integrity. In fact, part of the story of chapter 1 is the king gave them a daily ration of food. And they weren't going to eat any of that Babylonian food. They just wanted to eat vegetables, keep their Jewish law. Uh, And there's a great story about that. Uh, But I want you to skip down to when graduation day comes. Go down to about verse 19, or actually verse 18 of chapter 1. It says at the end of the days which the king had specified for presenting them the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar and the king talked with them and out of them all not one was found like Daniel Hananiah Mishael and Azariah so they entered the king's personal service as for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in all Israel, And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. So on graduation day, when Nebuchadnezzar interviews all of these people that have been through Babylonian boot camp, uh, they are ten times better. And yes, it mentions their intellectual abilities and their understanding. But again, the thing that made them stand out is that they had a spirit about them that came from their relationship with God. I'll never forget when I was a young man growing up in San Diego, there were military guys that would come through and, and join our congregation there. And there was this one particular uh, zealous Christian named Jeff Borden. He still lives there in San Diego. Uh, but I'll never forget, we were watching uh, the, the Olympics. I think it was in 1984. I was just a young man. And he was kind of just one of those guys that would say whatever he was thinking. And I remember we were watching the Olympics, and he said one day, he said, hey, how come there's not more Christians in the Olympics? And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, you know, Christians, we do things harder and better. We're more dedicated. Uh, And I I thought that was an interesting thing for him to point out. Um, But, you know, he had kind of a point. Not that Christians are necessarily going to spend their energy on earthly pursuits more than somebody else. But that in any given situation, Christians should stand out. Young person, you should be the one in your class that puts in the effort, that does things as if you're doing them for the Lord. Uh, somebody who goes to work every day should stand out because they don't do their work by way of eye service as men pleasers, but pleasing God. There's something about us that should. Cause attention because of the way that God is with us. Now, one more thing before we go to chapter 3. You may notice that in chapter 1, they're being called Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, and Daniel. But the Babylonians changed their names to Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Belteshazzar. Um, you know, all the Jewish names had something to do with God, the God of heaven. For example, Hananiah meant Yahweh is gracious. Mishael meant who is what God is, like the name Michael. Uh, Azariah meant Yahweh has helped. Uh, Daniel's name means God is my judge. But all of their new names had Babylonian gods wrapped up in their names. Um, Hananiah went from Yahweh is gracious to Shadrach, the servant of sin. Mishael went to Meshach, shadow of the prince. Uh, Azariah went to Abednego, the servant of Nego, or Ishtar, the god Mercury. Uh, Daniel went from God is my judge to Belteshazzar, Baal has protected my life. What was going on there? Think about that for these teenagers. It was like their new culture was trying to remove God from the conversation, was trying to force upon these young men For them to forget where they came from and and who they belong to. Does that sound familiar? We live in a time where more and more God isn't allowed to be talked about in the marketplace, in the school systems. But we as God's people should never forget who we really are. Uh, But this would have been a complicated situation for these young men. All right, let's go to chapter 3 and let's see their great story. It's a familiar story. It's usually told to our kids, but there's a lot more going on than just a simple children's story. Uh, Daniel chapter 3, beginning in verse 1 Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits, and he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to assemble the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, To you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. Therefore... At the time when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Let's talk about what we just read there. Nebuchadnezzar built this huge statue, this huge image, out on the plain of Dura. I don't know exactly what the image it was of. It probably was himself, maybe uh, he may have been enamored with a dream that he had back in chapter 2. This You may have remembered the dream that he had with the image of gold and silver uh, and bronze and uh, iron and clay at the feet. And Daniel had interpreted that dream and said, Nebuchadnezzar, you're the gold. Babylon's the gold. And the day the day of the Messiah, the day of um, the the last kingdom, the fourth kingdom, the iron and clay, that's when he's going to come and establish a kingdom that will never go away. Maybe Nebuchadnezzar was thinking about that, but whatever the case, he built this image and he calls together people from every language, every tribe, all the rulers come together and he says, you're all going to bow to this image. You know, sometimes in our world, there is a cause or a thing that everybody tries to say this needs to be the most important thing. Uh, Everybody, no matter who you are or where you're from, we need to bow to this idea, this image, this personality, this philosophy. And that can be a challenge for God's people when everybody is bowing down. So Nebuchadnezzar says, if you don't bow down, I'm going to kill you. So he strikes up the band, and according to Daniel here in verse 7, everybody bows down. Well, almost everybody Uh, There were some who didn't bow, and there there were some who were peeking. actually. Look at verse 8. For this reason, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. They responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar the king, O king, live forever. You, O king, made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music is to fall down and worship the golden image. But whoever does not fall down in worship will be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you and do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So the men who were peeking were some of the Chaldeans, some of the leaders of Babylon that were natives. They didn't like these job-stealing Jews. You know, this is kind of like Babylonian NAFTA. You've got these foreigners coming in and taking the, the political jobs, and they're probably not very keen on that. Uh, and these guys stood out. So as they're peaking, they notice that Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah don't bow down. So they come to the king. And and notice they they issue three charges against these young men. Uh, Basically, they say there in verse 12, um, these men disregard you. They don't listen to you. They don't serve our gods. um, And they aren't really fitting in with what's going on. Now, no king or president, for that matter, likes anybody that they've appointed to go against official policy. Uh, We've seen that even in our own nation. If somebody within the cabinet of the president isn't following suit, then they're ousted, they're fired. So Nebuchadnezzar has got a problem now because somebody that he appointed is not listening to what they've done or what he's ordered. So notice his reaction in verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, sultry, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, To fall down and worship the image that I have made, very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? You know, there's something interesting about this. In verse 13, Nebuchadnezzar's enraged and in anger. You don't want to make a guy like Nebuchadnezzar mad. He's the most powerful guy on the planet. And he's got a furnace there that he can throw you into. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come before him. And you notice how he almost changes his tune when he sees who it is? Sometimes, if you've done your work right, if you've been a good employee and somebody brings a charge against you, the person in charge has a hard time because they know you and you've never crossed them before. Well, Nebuchadnezzar does something strange. He gives them a second chance. That's not always the case in the ancient world. In fact, later on in the book of Daniel, there's a story about Daniel and the lion's den, but that was under Persian rule. Persian rule was different than Babylonian rule. In Babylon, the rule was rex lex. The king was above the law. In Persia, it was lex rex. The law was above the king. So in the story of Daniel and the lion's, Uh, The king couldn't change the decree. He had to throw Daniel in the lion's den. But here in Babylon, the king was above the law, so he can give him a second chance if he wants. But now, put yourself in the shoes of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Maybe the first time when the band played, you thought, well, we can get away with this. Nobody's paying attention. But now, the spotlight's on you. Now everybody's watching. Now you're standing in front of the king, and the king's very clear, if you don't obey, you're going to die. You ever been brave like on one occasion? But then as the pressure mounted and as things heated up and everybody was paying attention, then it, it got more difficult to obey. You know this question at the end of verse 15? What God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? By the way, that implies that Nebuchadnezzar knew these guys worshiped a different God. He knew that they promoted a God that was great. But his question is can your God really save you from me? Now, keep that question in mind because it's going to get answered as the story goes on. Verse 16 listen to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And his facial expression was altered toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. He commanded certain valiant warriors who were in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order to cast them into the furnace of blazing fire. These three men were tied up in their trousers, their coats, their caps, and their other clothes and were cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. For this reason, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace had been made extremely hot, the flame of the fire slew those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire, still tied up. Stop there if you would. I want to pause in the story Make some applications. We'll finish the story here in just a moment. I I want you to be impressed with what we've just read. Three young men, probably in their early 20s by this point. And what they do before the most powerful man on the planet is extraordinary. What they face here by going into the fire is pretty significant. Just think about the challenges here and, and what it is they had to overcome and how you would have done if you were in their place. Number one, there was a fire that they could see. They could feel the heat of it. And, and you know, sometimes that's all it takes to get a Christian to stop being a Christian, is the devil just sort of cranks up the heat a little bit. It gets harder in a nation, or in a, a, a state that you live in, or a church that you worship in, to stand up for what's right. So as the heat comes up, it becomes more difficult Because you can see the consequence. This is actually one of the most important lessons in all the Bible. That the immediate consequence of doing the right thing, or the immediate consequence of doing the wrong thing, usually leads us down the the wrong path. Think about it. Why is it hard to tell the truth? Because usually telling the truth, there's a reaction to it. Uh, You get in trouble if you tell the truth if you've done something wrong. Uh, People don't like you if you tell the truth if you're telling them something they don't want to hear. But over and over again, the immediate consequence of sin is usually pleasurable for us. We get something that we want. But what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego teach us is that we need to walk by faith, not by sight. You see, Nebuchadnezzar's fire, as hot as it was was not nearly as hot as the fire on the other side. There was a God who's a consuming fire. And if the difficulties of this life cause us to do the wrong thing, someday we're going to have to stand before God. That's a far scarier thing. You know, the whole idea of learning to see beyond the moment is really important. Proverbs chapter 23, verse 31, I believe that text says, don't look at the wine when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smooth. Look at the wine later, when it beats you up, when you, uh, you have red, blurry eyes from the consequence. I mean, all sin is like that. Don't think about the pleasure of the moment or how to escape from this difficult situation like Peter at the soldier's fire. Look beyond it. Walk by faith, not by sight. You know, a second lesson here. Um, Not only was there a fire they could see, they were young. And you know what they say about young, being young? That's the time in your life where you don't have to be committed. You get to sow your wild oats. By the way, I know some Christian parents who give their children that excuse. They don't call them to commitment and to be extraordinary Christians. They sort of shrug their shoulders and say, well, you know, after all, they're young. If you think like that, I want you to remember this story. Um, the Bible makes it clear that God doesn't judge us based upon our age. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, Paul told Timothy to flee youthful lust To let no one look down upon your youthfulness. When I was growing up, uh, I wanted to use the excuse that I was young. But there were other young people around me that weren't bowing down to all the images that everybody else was. They were an encouragement to me. They weren't sleeping around. They weren't doing drugs. They weren't looking at things they shouldn't look at. They were committed to God. Young people, when the world's bowing down, you stand up. I I guess there's another question to ask here. Where were the elders of Israel? I mean, if everybody was bowing down, where were the older Jews who should have been the example? Older folks in the church, those that are young need to see us standing up And doing what's right. Not caving in to all the pressures of all the religious relativism out there. What's right? What's true? Third strike. There was a fire they could see. They were young. And they were away from home. You ever known people to do things away from home that they didn't do at home? You know, they're anonymous now. They go away to college and uh, nobody's looking over their shoulder. One of the things I, I love the most about young people who go away to school and stay committed to God is that they know that they're not serving God for their parents or for anybody and that they can't get away from God. Uh, I remember, again, growing up in San Diego when these, some of these young Navy guys would come. Uh, It it turned out that every time parents of these Navy guys would come visit, they would show up at church with their parents. But they'd never been at church before. They'd been telling their parents they'd go there. I I really messed up one guy one day. I I saw this man and a woman sitting on either side of a young Navy guy. I could tell by his haircut. And I was maybe 10 years old. And I bounced up and I, I stuck my hand out to the dad. And I said, hi, my name's Andy. What's your name? And as I did that, I could see the Navy guy kind of put his head down and I stuck my hand out to the young man and I said, hey, I'm Andy, what's your name? And both the parents looked at him and he kind of got red and he reluctantly told me. You see this, I, I actually recognized what was happening. I blew his cover. I, he'd been telling his parents he was coming to this church all along. Uh, that was probably an uncomfortable lunch for him. But you know, every once in a while, you, you see somebody, I would, I would see a young person in the in the military or in college that, that was committed to God because they were committed. You know, another thing that would have been difficult. There's a fire they could see, they were young, they were away from home. But they were trying to they were trying not to do what everybody else was doing. Peer pressure is so hard, not just when you're young. It gets harder as you get to be an adult. And you go and you have a job at a company and, and the pressure is then, you know, not to do foolish, childish things, but to put your career above above your family. That that you gotta make the sale no matter what, so you don't have to be honest. Christians need to see these stories and make sure that we aren't just going with the flow and going down the broad road. You know, another thing, this might be simple, but they had a great job to lose. You've never had a job this good, working for the most powerful man on the planet? And they could have said what some Christians say, well, I can't be devoted to God and actually, you know, go worship on Sundays. I might lose my job. I have a brother-in-law that was really high up in a company, and they kept making him travel, and they kept taking him away from his family and from the church, And one day he just walked in and said, I quit. Now, he didn't exactly know what was going to come of that. He's been blessed since then. But I've always admired Greg Ramsey for him knowing that something had to come before the work that we do in this life. Now, there's a a bunch of great lessons in this, but one of my favorite things is how they answer the king. Look again at verses 16 through 18. These guys... Simply look at the king and say, we don't need to discuss this. We don't need to, to come up with something clever to say to you. The answer is no. We're not going to bow to your image. You know, Titus chapter 2, verse 12 says that the grace of God has appeared and has taught us to say no to ungodliness. Nebuchadnezzar was in the habit of usually calling in his wise men to interpret things. Hey, what does this mean? He didn't have to interpret this. We can learn a lot from these young men as Christians. I want to show you the end of the story. Look at verse 24. Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded and stood up in haste, and he said to his high officials, "'Was it not three men we cast into the midst of the fire?' They replied to the king, "'Certainly, O king.'" He said, look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of blazing fire, and he responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God, and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's high officials gathered around and saw in regard to these men that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men, nor was the hair of their head singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor had the smell of fire even come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar sees his valiant warriors die as they get near the fire, but he sees these young men fall into the fire, and when he's looking, he sees an image of the fourth A fourth man, like the son of the gods, perhaps God was with them. Perhaps it was a theophany, a Christophany. But whatever it was, God was with them. You know what the lesson is? And this is the most important thing of this story. You may think that the whole world's against you. You may be intimidated because everyone at your workplace or in your neighborhood or your nation doesn't understand the stand that you take for God. And, And when you don't bow down to all the world's images, they may shame you. But there might be one person who sees it. Like the case of Nebuchadnezzar, he'd ask the question, what God is there that can deliver you? And now he, he says there in verse 26, Come out, you servants of the Most High God. Do you realize that because of what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did, Nebuchadnezzar made one of the greatest confessions about God in all of the Bible. Not just here in chapter 3, but if you go into chapter 4, he had many lessons to learn. God still needed to teach him. But some of the things that Nebuchadnezzar says about God are the most beautiful and encouraging things you can read about God. What you do in this world may set somebody on the road to belief, but we have to be brave. We have to be committed. I want to end with this story. It's not a Bible story, but it happened in the Bible times. Before the um, Caesars ruled Rome, Rome was ruled by seven kings. The last king was a, a man by the name of Tarquinius, Superbus, He gave himself that name, the superb one. He wasn't. He was a tyrant. Rome kicked him out. But because of that, he wanted to destroy Rome. So three times he tried. Twice he hired uh, the, the Etruscans. Once he hired the Bolsheens. And there's this story about the last time that he tried. He, he hired the Etruscans. There was a king by the name of Porzana who led the siege against Rome. Well, he surrounded Rome and he was going to starve them out. Things got really bad inside of the city. 300 young men bound themselves with an oath and they said, we're not going to sleep or eat until King Porzana is dead. One of them, a guy named Mucius, went before the Roman Senate to get permission to leave the city. They didn't, he didn't want them to think he was a rat fleeing a sinking ship and get an arrow in his back. They gave him permission. He swam across the moat at night, snuck into the uh, Etruscan camp, and he went into a tent where there was some activity, and he stabbed the most important man he could look he could find, hoping it was King Porzana. It wasn't. It was the treasurer. So they brought him before King Porzana. Now picture this. King Porzana is sitting on a big throne, fire on either side. Mucius is standing before him, and he says, I'm going to ask you, um, how close is Rome to capitulating? How close am I to victory? Uh, And I'm going to torture you until you tell me. Now, Mucius stuck his hand out over one of the censers of fire, um, and he uh, left it there, and said something to the king like, what was that you were saying about torture? Now, it was fairly impressive that he did this. And because of that act of bravery, um, Porzana said, I'm going to let you go for being that brave. And Mucius said, well, since you're being gracious to me, I'll tell you. There's 299 guys like me who aren't going to eat until you're dead. Well, when Porzana realized what he faced, he picked up the siege and went home. You know that story is about Rome being saved because of the bravery of one man. By the way, from that time on in Rome, they called Mucius Mucius Skybolis, which means lefty, because he burned off his right hand. It's a true story. But you know, Christian For us being brave and standing up for what's right and being like Hananiah, Michelle and Azariah, we may not save our nation or a city, but we might save a soul. So don't give up. Love the Lord more than anything. Thanks for your attention. I appreciate it.